So Genesis chapter 41, we've left Joseph last week. He's come from the pit into the palace. He's been languishing in the prison pit for many years. He's gone now from rags to riches, from the bottom to the top. And don't we all love the rags to riches story? Those who reach the peak of their career after a lifetime of struggle and hardship. And so consider these two men. Both of them are born in adversity, in abject poverty, in the American cliche, in a log cabin with no uh, wooden floor. They were sons of peasant parents. And both of them suffered a loss as a parent as a young child. And because of that, neither one had formal education. They had to go work hard, laborious, physical jobs. And neither one of them liked it. So they began to teach themselves to read and to write. And both of them climbed the ladder, not only corporately, one was a lawyer, one went into business, but each climbed the local, state, and national political ladder. Both were to become presidents of the United States, from abject poverty to the highest office in the land. Two very similar stories, but with two terribly different results. Each are recorded in the history books, but for different reasons. The first gave perhaps the greatest inaugural address in history, and one of the shortest. The other took his, office off, his oath of office earlier that day, drunk, and went on an incoherent ramble that was embarrassing to him and to his listeners and to the nation. The first held the nation together through the Civil War, and he ended slavery. The other almost wrecked the reconstruction of that same nation, and it was a horrible white supremacist. One ascended to be one of the greatest U.S. presidents in history. The other went down in history as the first president to be impeached and is often ranked as the worst chief executive. One's monument overlooks the National Mall. One you have to go find in an obscure corner of the Tennessee State Capitol. We're talking about Abraham Lincoln and Andrew Johnson. You can see their mugs here. So two men who overcame incredible odds as children to obtain the presidency. Each went from a log house to the White House, kind of like from a pit to a prison, or a pit to the palace. But their performance and their legacies couldn't be any farther apart. Why is this? How do these two men who hold the highest job in the nation perform so differently despite such similar backgrounds in history? When they both obtained power, how did they yield it? Why did they yield it so differently? It comes down to character. Where Lincoln learns from his early years, he rises with humility and maturity. Johnson remains bitter and angry, thinking that somehow, somewhere, someone owes him something. Where Lincoln served the country as president, Johnson wanted the country to serve him as president. Lincoln was open-minded, willing to listen to criticism. He's open to public opinion, able to get along with people. Johnson, on the other hand, was stubbornly racist, insensitive, and selfish. Whereas Lincoln walked with malice toward none and charity for all, Johnson was the guy at the high school reunion waiting to walk in and says, wait till they see me now. Why this lesson in presidential biography? What these two men teach us, as Joseph will teach us, is how do the times of adversity prepare us for the times of prosperity? And when we come to a time of prosperity and influence and affluence, how will we behave? When we come to Genesis 41, we're going to see Joseph suddenly elevated from the prison pit to Pharaoh's palace, going from slave and prisoner 
to prime minister in a moment. His time in the shadows are over, and he's suddenly thrust onto the national and global scene into government service. So which direction will Joseph's career take? Will he go down in history as one of the worst prime ministers of Egypt, embittered and vengeful like Andrew Johnson? Or will he prevail as humble and contrite like Abraham Lincoln, ready to serve the cause of the nation, to serve others, and to serve God? Let's turn to Genesis 41 and see how Joseph responds to this sudden elevation from imprisonment to national leadership. And from an example, we too can learn how to live righteously when we are elevated to a position of prosperity, popularity, and influence. So remember, Joseph has been brought in to the palace to interpret Pharaoh's two dreams. So Joseph says these dreams reveal God's will for the land of Egypt, that there will be seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of famine. And then Joseph gives these instructions to Pharaoh, starting in verse 33. Joseph says this, Now therefore let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities, and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt, so that the land may not perish through the famine. 37. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and as wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall, be, shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in the second chariot, and they called out before him, Bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up a hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zephaniah Peanah, and he gave him in marriage Asenath, the daughter of Potiphera, priest of On. So Joseph went out over all the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. So we've walked with Joseph through times of affliction, of hardship and trouble. He's been in slavery, he's been in the prison, and now he's standing as prince of all Egypt, second in command only to Pharaoh. He went from the worst of times to the best of times. So what happens when life goes well for us? What do we do with ourselves? How do we respond? How do we act in times of personal or professional achievement and success? Well, Joseph will give us four characteristics here of how we should behave and imitate in our days of success and prosperity. So our first characteristic here, we see him first. Joseph is grounded in God's plan. Joseph is firmly grounded in God's plan. We've seen over these past few weeks that Joseph is radically God-centered. Every action, everything he does is, 
in light of the fact that he is solely secure and focused on the Lord. Joseph has a firm understanding of God's sovereignty here, that God is controlling every aspect, every detail of his life. And we've seen Joseph react time and time again faithfully in submission to God's plan. Joseph knows God is with him because God has prospered his hand at uh, Potiphar's house and in the prison. God's presence and his law overshadow him when he runs from temptation. God's revealing to Joseph dreams and interpretations and instructions. Joseph knows his life is not dictated by some whim or by fate or by luck, but God is working all of these things together for Joseph's good. Joseph's life is grounded in God's sovereign plan for his life. And we can see three specific aspects of his trust. First, we know Joseph is grounded in God's timing, that sometimes God works slow, and sometimes God works really fast. When we meet Joseph in Genesis chapter 37, he's 17 years old. And if you notice in verse 46, Joseph is now 30. Counting all those years, those, that's 14 years from when we met Joseph until now. And God is working very slowly because he's been enslaved. He's been in prison 14 years. And then in just a few moments, he's elevated to prime minister of all Egypt. God is working slowly over the course of years, decades even. And then God works really fast in the moment, bringing change almost instantly. Can you imagine Joseph wasting away into the prison year after year, hoping this will be the day that the cupbearer is going to remember me? He probably wakes up on this Thursday afternoon or Thursday morning and says, man, another day at the prison. And then suddenly a knock on his jail cell says, hey, you're being summoned to the throne room. And Joseph's like, oh, okay, better get going. Because he knows that God is working slowly. And this is kind of the midpoint here in chapter 41 of Joseph's adult life. He's worked for 14 years in slavery in the prison, and God is preparing him to work 14 more in government service as the second in command of all Egypt. Seven years of abundance, seven years of freedom. But isn't that how God often works in our lives? Slowly, imperceptibly, sluggishly? And like Joseph, I don't think we realize what God is doing in those slow, obscure, difficult moments until we step back and look backwards and see what God has done. So do you recognize God's timing in your own life? God is working, teaching you patience, working slowly and methodically, teaching you what he wants in the ordinary, in the mundane, in the troubling, in the affliction. God is working slowly. We're trying to teach my daughter, who's two this week, patience. And so we told her she was going to go to Nani and Pops. And she's like, Nani? Pop? Yes, Eloise, in about 30 minutes. Finish your breakfast. Let's get dressed. Then we can go ride, shoes. And she gets sidetracked for about 30 seconds. Ride, shoes, Nani, Pop? Patience, Eloise. Patience. Patience? Wait, Eloise. Wait. No waiting with a two-year-old. No waiting for a 42-year-old sometimes. God is teaching Joseph to wait, and then suddenly, in a moment, he's summoned to the throne room, ready to act. He's gone before the most powerful man in the world, and is immediately given a job that he just wrote the job description for. So when God calls you, will you be ready to go? 
So think in your own life. Think 13 or 14 years ago. Where were you and what was God doing? And how has God been working over those years? Have there been times of abundance? Have there been times of famine, of hardship, or of plenty? I think back 13 or 14 years ago and I started seminary. I'd left a promising career, went into seminary, didn't know where God was taking me. And those years weren't necessarily enslaved or in prison, but some of those days felt like it. When God is preparing and shaping. So 13 or 14 years ago to today, if I look 13 or 14 years from now, sorry mom, I'll be 50. That's a long time. But what's God going to do when I get there, when you get there? God is working in Joseph's life, and God is working slowly, and then calling Joseph immediately. And Joseph's able to react because he knows God's timing. He also knows, secondly, God's certainty that this plan will come to pass. That God works in his own divine timing, and his plan is certain. If you look up in verse 34 in this chapter, we see after Joseph recounts Pharaoh's dreams, and he says the doubling of Pharaoh's dreams, which is the dream of cows and of corn, means, these two dreams mean that this thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. So the doubling says, this will happen, Pharaoh. And if we look through all the Joseph narrative, you see all of these doublings. Joseph himself has two dreams, one of wheat, one of stars. Joseph has two descents, one into slavery and then into the prison. Mrs. Potiphar puts two temptations at Joseph. Joseph meets two of Pharaoh's servants who have two dreams with two interpretations and two outcomes. Then Pharaoh, his two dreams are recounted twice. This is all to show us, to get and focus our attention, that we see that God's plan is set and is certain. He declares the end from the beginning, doing them and causing them to come to pass. God is the first, God is the last, showing himself time and time again that he is the only God, the only sovereign, the only ruler of the world. And throughout all of history, even to today, God's plan is certain and secure. It can be trusted, and we must submit ourselves to it. But not just resigning ourselves as, well, whatever God says is going to happen, let the world burn, I'm going to sit back and watch it happen. That's not what Pharaoh, that's not what Joseph does. That's not what Pharaoh does. That's not what we do. Joseph knows God's control and his timing are going to work, so Joseph gets to work. Because Joseph knows God's timing is certain, but Joseph also knows his role as God's servant. Joseph suddenly finds himself as the prince of all Egypt, second in command, the prime minister, and this doesn't take Joseph by surprise. He just takes it in stride. I think he's able to do this because he knows that he's only a servant. He's only a player, only a, an actor here in God's grand drama of redemptive history. If we think it for a moment, Joseph not only becomes the highest-ranking official in the Egyptian government, he's about to become the savior of the world. In a few short years, a famine's going to wreck the economy and the lifestyle of all the nations on the earth. And there's only going to be one avenue for food and for salvation. All the world is about to come to Joseph for bread and for life. And Joseph's able to handle all of this because he knows his role as God's man at that time. 
for such a time as this, says Esther. And no, if we think about it, many politicians and tyrants and dictators over the age, they all aspire to be the savior of their party, of their nation, or even the world. But Joseph never succumbs to these temptations because he understands his role as God's steward, as God's servant. He knows that Joseph, he's not the savior of the world, only God is. Because we see this in chapter 50, he says to his brothers, am I in the place of God? And that answer is no. Joseph says, as for you brothers, you meant it evil, but God meant it for good that many people will be kept alive. Joseph sees God at work time and time again, and he knows that this is my role, I'm going to play it well. And Joseph doesn't see all this at once. He doesn't have the whole script in front of him. He just knows in this moment, I need to act faithfully and with obedience. What God has called me to do, I will act in accordance. It takes a while, I think, for Joseph to really discover his role in this relatively short period in God's story because Joseph doesn't see the big picture. But Joseph is preparing the way for the true Savior of the world. Without Joseph, the people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob languish in Canaan under a famine and die. Without family trees starved out, there's no fulfilled promise that all the nations of the world will be blessed to the people of Abraham. So in a small way, here in, Gen in Genesis 41, all the nations of the earth are about to be blessed as they stream to Joseph for life and for food. But much later, a, re a distant relative of Joseph will rise up and declare, I am the bread of life. Anyone who comes to me will never hunger or thirst again. So Joseph is providing us a preview of what God is going to do through Jesus. Joseph will save the world through a physical famine. Jesus comes to save us from a spiritual famine. Joseph plays his role well, foreshadowing the greater Joseph. And so, for us, when we rise to some level of success or prosperity or popu popularity, remember who's writing your script. Remember who's in charge and trust God's sovereign direction of your life. But know your role. Know your role as God's servant. Maintain your footing in the one who has come and brought us to this point and called us to be his servant. We must be grounded in God's plan because it will come to pass and it will come to pass for our good. So we see Joseph grounded in God's plan, but we also see him stay true to his character. How, do he, how does he play this role so brilliantly? Well, secondly, I think that Joseph shows us that we must be resilient against cultural pressure. We must be resilient and faithful in the midst of cultural pressure. Notice again, starting in verse 42, what happens when Pharaoh makes his pronouncement over Joseph. Then Pharaoh took a signet ring in verse 42 from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in a second chariot. And they called out before him, Bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, if you forgot. And without your consent, no one shall lift up a hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphonoth paneah And he gave him in marriage Asenoth, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. So what's going on here? Joseph is given a signet ring, which is the sign of authority. He's giving a clothing allowance. 
He's given jewelry, a gold necklace. He's given a company car or company chariot and an entourage to run before him. There's so much going on here that we kind of miss and just glance over. Well, that's just what you do as a prime minister. There's something more nefarious here. Joseph is try- or Pharaoh is trying to Egyptianize Joseph. He's trying to give Joseph a new identity. He's shaved like an Egyptian. He dresses like an Egyptian. He's adorned like an Egyptian. He talks like an Egyptian. Like the Bengals after him, he will walk like an Egyptian. Thank you, child of the 80s. Joseph's name is changed to be an Egyptian. His wife's an Egyptian. His family are the leading sun worshipers in all of Egypt. Joseph is facing tremendous pressure to forget his past, forget his family, forsake his identity, and become a full-blown, full-blooded Egyptian, to forget worshiping God and to worship everything else. And don't we face the same temptation today from the pagan influences around us? Doesn't the world want us to abandon our identity as Christians and to assimilate with clothes and appearance, to forsake our identity and our belief? to take on its clothes, its language, to do the things that it does. But we must be resilient in the face of social and cultural pressure. Do not be conformed to the world, says Paul. Do not love the things of the world, says John. Do not be conformed to the passions that surround you, says Peter. Hold fast the confession without wavering. This is our call as it was to Joseph. But how do we know Joseph remained faithful? if we look through this passage, we see it's all in the names. Because in verse 45, Pharaoh changes Joseph's name to Zephaniah-Paneah. And embedded in that name, and even his wife's name, is the Egyptian god, Nath. It means something like the god speaks, or the revealer of all secrets. And so what's implied here is that when Joseph takes on an Egyptian name, that Joseph's name will have a religious allegiance tied to it. That he won't be a Hebrew anymore worshiping Yahweh. He will be an Egyptian worshiping Nath and Ra and Pharaoh himself. And we see name changes elsewhere in the Old Testament. Same thing happens to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Well, Daniel you probably recognize. But Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, you know better as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Those three names, along with Belshazzar of Daniel, all take their place in the Babylonian pantheon of gods. See, Nebuchadnezzar, like Pharaoh, is trying to change these boys' names so they will conform to the cultural and religious practices of the place that they are. But throughout the entire scripture, Joseph's name is never changed. We see it in verse 45, but it's never mentioned again. Thankfully, I don't have to read it again. It shows that this name change didn't stick. Joseph's identity was never associated fully with Egypt. He doesn't succumb to the cultural pressure that Pharaoh and others put on him. He kept his familiar and religious heritage. And moreover, when he names his children, we see his trust in God and not in Egypt. Move down to verse 50. And so in verse 50, it says this, Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potiphera, priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for God has made me forget all of my hardship and all my father's house. 
The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. And it's interesting here, the two names that Joseph picks, they're Hebrew names, not Egyptian. Both are pointing back to God's work. Manasseh, God made me forget. Ephraim, God has made me faithful. When we look back at significance of names in the Old Testament, we see a powerful statement here by Joseph. He doesn't take on a new Egyptian name. He doesn't give his boys Egyptian names. He maintains his strict faith and trust in God, never compromising, keeping he and his family focused. It is God, the one true God, who has done this for us. And it would have been really easy for Joseph just to conform to an Egyptian way of life, much the same way it would be for us to simply slide unthinkingly into American dream, put our hopes and fears and stocks in everything here and now. Jesus will face a similar temptation in the desert when Satan comes to Jesus and says, all the kingdoms of the world can be yours if you bow down to me. So you can forsake the cross, you can forget all the hardship, you can forget all the suffering if you just follow me. But Jesus remains resilient against this temptation because he knows his identity is the Son of God just as Joseph did, just as we should. And so when life gets easier for us and the good life beckons, don't be overtaken by riches, fame, and privileges of this life. They will destroy you and take your soul. So serve God with holiness. Refuse to be taken in by the kingdoms, the cultures, and the gods of this world. We maintain our faith and identity in Christ above all. And so we see Joseph working, and we see Joseph moving in obedience here because he's grounded in God's plan. He's resuming against the culture pressure. But then when he's plopped into this new role as prime minister, what does he do? Well, thirdly, we see Joseph working with eager competence. Joseph is working with eager competence because when Pharaoh hears Joseph's plan, he says, that's what we need. And Joseph, you're the man to do it. And he throws Joseph immediately into the role. There's no hiring phase. There's no solicitation of resumes. There's no recruitment plan, no headhunting. Joseph, you're it. You're on go. So how does Joseph respond to this new task, the sudden promotion? Well, look back in verse 47. Joseph gets to work. Verse 47 says this, During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly. Joseph, or Pharaoh's dreams is coming to pass. And Joseph gathered up all the food of these seven years which occurred in the land of Egypt and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. And so notice when Joseph gets this job, he doesn't back up and say, whoa, wait a minute. I'm not ready for this. He doesn't reject the assignment. He doesn't make excuses. He doesn't back away from responsibility. He embraces it. He accepts a job with contentment, cooperation, and even eagerness. It had been real easy for Joseph to be like, hey, I just got out of the prison. I need a vacation. I need to go to the coast. I need to go to the beach. Hey, you just gave me a wife? I need a honeymoon. No, no, Pharaoh, I need some time for self-care. We've got seven years, Pharaoh. We've got, we got seven years for the famine hits. Give me some time. Joseph doesn't do that. He eagerly gets to work. He does this, I think, because Joseph knows he's not working for Pharaoh. He's working unto the Lord. 
Joseph has a major task before him, and with eagerness, he goes to work because he knows what God has called him to do. Joseph is illustrating what Paul talked about in Colossians chapter 3. And so you can see Colossians chapter 3 here. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So when God calls you to a task, it's in your job, in your school, at the church, or even at home, do you attack it with eagerness? Or do you wait around, dragging your feet, biding your time? But when God gives us something to do, do we obey it? Even in the most mundane, even in the most boring homework assignment, even in the most trivial of tasks. Do we work with enthusiasm? Do we work with procrastination or excuses or just resolve? Fine, I'll go do it. We work before the Lord. And he works with eagerness, but he also works with competence. Joseph's instruction here about what's to come, he gives a job description, but he also gives characteristics of who that person should be. This person should be discerning and wise. Pharaoh says, Joseph, you're discerning, you're wise, now go do these things. And Joseph sets up these tasks to perform. And so Joseph just writes this job description. He's like, all right, go do it. Okay, Pharaoh, I'll go do it. And all of Joseph's upbringing from the time he was a little kid to now he's 30, God is preparing Joseph for this moment. This is the fourth house that Joseph has been over. Jacob's, his father's house, Pharaoh's, Potiphar's house, the jailhouse, and now the house of Pharaoh, the house of Egypt. God doesn't waste the opportunity, and, and Joseph doesn't shirk the responsibility. Joseph knows what he's supposed to do, and he does it. He executes with precision and excellence. It's not a job half done. He goes all in. Again, Joseph is working for the Lord and not for others, and, and not for himself, but for the good of others. And so thinking about in the preparation and in the task he has at hand, Joseph works with competence, and he works with backbone. It's a 20% tax. You think your taxes are bad? Read my lips, said Joseph. All new taxes. He knows that this job is going to be difficult, and he sticks with it. It comes with a high cost, and he holds himself to it and all the others. Joseph doesn't back down. What God has called him to, he will see done. He knows it's a coming famine that's going to wipe out all of the prophets from these seven years. And he convinces the nation to give one-fifth, 20% of their grain in a banner year of production. Egypt has never seen anything like these seven years. But Joseph says, I'm going to take 20% of your grain, hide it away for a long time. So he sets up infrastructure. He brings in personnel to oversee it all. Joseph's training, all of these years have prepared him to work with confidence and competence. He doesn't just kick off his shoes and lounge around. He gets to work. So in the preparatory years, when God is working in the slowness, in the mundane, in the ordinary, in the hard, are you working with eagerness? Are you trying to learn? Are you trying to grow? Are you trying to take in all you can? Are you waiting until the big job comes? Then I'll get to work. With that fancy title, the company car, the clothing allowance, all the trappings of elegance and greatness, then I'll, then I'll put in some effort. I've worked with students for a long time, and it really irks me when they just says, Eh, C's get degrees. Oh, D's get degrees. What am I talking about? I can just slink by, get in with all of this as little effort as possible. I can do that some other time. I'll just turn this in. I'll just copy this. God is preparing you students for what he's going to have for you in the future. 
And if I see somebody just kind of slacking off, if they're in school, in college, eh, it's just Zoom. I'll just log in, lay on my bed, close my eyes. I'm present. I would never hire somebody who treats any responsibility that way. God is preparing you now for the big things to come. Because God is looking faithfulness in the small things. And that means even here at church, cleaning up garbage in the parking lot, knocking down spider webs, picking up chairs and tables, going to play with little kids in the nursery. God is looking for faithfulness in the small things to give you responsibility in the big things. And then when life gets easier, when you make it on top, or we just say, ask somebody else to do it. Or Joseph could have said, hey, all you overseers, you take care of the work. I'm going to go cruise down the Nile. Joseph doesn't do that. He doesn't push responsibility off. He works with diligence and competence at every step along the way. And so should we. We work with eager competence. So after seven years of plenty, the job turns from gathering grain to distributing it. And we see Joseph lastly serve with humble integrity. Joseph serves with humble integrity. We'll read in verse 53. The seven years of plenty that occurred in Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There was famine in all lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Joseph for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. I almost titled this message, Joseph, making government great again. But then I thought better of it. Because we've become jaded and frustrated at our politicians and our leaders. And too often we see government officials and leaders only ambitious after notoriety or honor for their own name or money or power. We've lost the ideal that government official is a government public servant. Joseph is the consummate public servant. Lord Acton, in his quip, he says, Power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely especially in a crisis situation with a dictator on the throne in Pharaoh. It had been really easy for them to say, no, all the food's for us, for the nobility, for the people who give me a bribe. Not so with Joseph. Joseph is not content to let the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. So he sets up this welfare system to serve not himself or his buddies, but the entire world. He never asserts his power and position for himself. Joseph is serving with humble integrity. It was said of Abraham Lincoln about when he came to power this. He says, Nothing discloses real character like the use of power. Most people can bear adversity, but if you wish to know what is a man is really like, give him power. This is the supreme test. It is the glory of Abraham Lincoln that, having almost absolute power, he never abused it except on the side of mercy. And something similar can be said of Joseph. Joseph never abuses his power except on the side of mercy to serve others. And so the real test for us, like Joseph, like Lincoln, is when we get power, when we get influence, what do we do with it? Do we serve ourselves or do we serve others? Joseph is all about serving others. His humility shines because he's serving 
everyone else, working so others might live. His absolute power goes to mercy. And notice in verse 55 that everybody who comes to Pharaoh, Pharaoh says, hey, you go to Joseph, because Joseph works with integrity. He's a man of righteousness, of honesty. Pharaoh's turned everything over to Joseph. And this aspect of Joseph's character manifests itself most in a global crisis. Because if you look through verses 50 through 57, the word all appears eight times. And in Hebrew, there's no like exclamation point. You can't bold or italicize something. So if the author wants you to know something, he repeats it. And it's all the land of Egypt, all the world, all the storehouses, all the people. The famine is severe, and they send everybody to Joseph. And it would have been real easy for Joseph and Pharaoh to say, nope, we have an Egyptian first policy. Instead, they allow all the neighbors to come buy grain so that they may live. Joseph works with integrity, justice, and righteousness. There's no hint of graft, bribery, or government waste. Joseph is caring for the poor, the downtrodden, and the alien. By serving those in need, Joseph is showing God's heart for the people of the world. Through Joseph, all the nations will be blessed. And isn't this our call as well? In famine or in feast, we work hard for God and we serve other people. And so out of the abundance that we have, we give to others. And so everything that Joseph had, given by God. Everything we have, given by God. Joseph's the steward of all the grain in Egypt. We are the steward of all that God has given to us. And we probably don't have the influence that Joseph had, but we have influence every day. So when we have arrived, when things go well for us, don't be content to merely serve yourself. When you get that raise, don't think about what kind of elaborate vacation you can go to. Think about supporting a missionary. When God has called you to the high place, don't just sit back and relax. Work with diligent, honestly, work humbly. We live from the overflow, in famine or in feast. So are we giving the abundant years to others or living for ourselves? So we see all of these things in Joseph, and it'd be great if we just looked at this character study, but what Joseph is doing, he's lifting our eyes not to himself or to say, hey, this is how you live. He points us forward to Jesus because Jesus was also working as the Father had sent him to work. Listen to John uh, chapter 5. Here's Jesus' words to the crowd. He says, But Jesus answered the crowd, My Father is working into now, and I am working. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Notice that phrase at the end of verse 21, The Son gives life. Joseph gave physical life to the people of Egypt and the world. Jesus comes to give us life, spiritual life, using the analogy of bread. And notice that Jesus also comes in the famous passage in Mark. He says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Joseph is foreshadowing the work of Christ. Jesus comes to seek and save the lost. He dies for them and offers the body, or offers his body and his blood as bread and as wine, without cost, if we would come to him. 
in the famine years, in the years of plenty, Jesus supplies everything that we need. As the nation streamed to Egypt and the storehouses that Joseph had bought and brought up, we must move to Christ because he is the end of God's plan. It is in his timing, when the fullness of time had come, God sent Christ for us. He is the servant of God ministering to his people to work on their behalf, to resist the satanic temptations. So Jesus is coming and says, you may be starved and hungry. I am the bread of life. You are famished and broken. I will give you rest, says Jesus. So this morning, come to Jesus. Eat and live. The prophet Isaiah foretold and prophesied of the coming of Christ in chapter 55 here. The prophet says this. He says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money, without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen to me and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make you an everlasting covenant. This is the promise that God has given to us. Come to Jesus and live. Let's pray.